and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yardena Osband, our daf of the day, Masachet Ketubot, daf ayin, page 70. On page 70, we actually have a new parak, which gives us a new Mishnah and a whole, kind of a whole new topic. Um, we're not covering the last bit of the previous parak. See it there. You'll see it kind of wraps up. I felt that this previous parak wrapped up kind of quickly, chapter six. Um, I kind of thought there was going to be much more on the dowry issue than there was, meaning the, the I felt like there was a lot more around the issues of a dowry than actually what goes into it. But maybe that's par for the course because each family is going to determine what the dowry is. In this pack, we're going to talk about what happens when people uh, violate or break the terms of the agreements that go into betrothal and marriage, which promises to be interesting. Um, okay, here we go. So if there's a man who vows, and in that vow, he he kind of require he puts this oath on his wife as well, prohibiting her from getting any benefit from him, right? Meaning she says, he says, you, the wife, cannot get any benefit from him. Then now that's kind of not that's against the terms of the equation of marriage, where of course he's going to provide for her and so on, right? So then the question is, how can he make such a vow? And the Mishnah says that vow can be in effect for up to 30 days, but after 30 days, or if it will last as long as 30 days, he needs to appoint a trustee, that's the parnas, to support her, meaning he is still obligated in that in that piece of the equation to support her. And if it goes on for longer than that, if there's more than a 30-day position of Oder um, Hana'a, right? He's taking away the any benefit that he might provide for the wife. She can't have it. Then he has to divorce her um, and and give her the ketubah, meaning the, the requirement here um, is pretty stark, right? Like the expectation is that you are in this marriage relationship. It is, it does include a transactional component. And if you are forswearing that, then you don't get to stay married, even to the extent that during the time that they do stay married, those 30 days, there has to be an, he has to appoint somebody from whom this woman could get that benefit, right, in terms of sustenance and so on, um, to make sure that she is provided for. He can't just let it go, not even for the first 30 days. Rabbi Yehuda Omer B'Yisrael, Chodesh Echad Yikayim, Ushnaim Yotzi, V'yitink Tuba. So Rabbi Yehuda has the approaches this a little bit differently. He says that if the husband in the, is a Yisrael, meaning not a Kohen, not a Levi, then and then what happens if the oath is in effect for a month? He can then um, he has to he can continue to to sustain her as his wife. Meaning one month they can still be married, but if it's two months, so the time frame for Rabbi Huda is a little bit longer. Two months he has to divorce her and give her the ketubah. And for a Kohen, if the husband who has been Moder Hana'ah, who has forsworn the benefit that he's supposed to be providing to his wife, then he gets a little extra time. And that means that for two months, he can still be married to her, meaning if this oath would go on for two months. And then, but at three months, he would have to divorce her. And the rationale, at least the rationale is provided in the commentaries and then maybe the leader in the Gemara, is that because a Kohen, cannot marry a divorcee, right? Meaning he can't even marry his own ex-wife. So therefore, they're going to give the Kohen a little bit of extra time 
to make sure that he really means to go through with it in this kind of way. Meaning he's literally forswearing the terms of marriage. Okay, the Mishnah goes on. It's actually a long Mishnah here in terms of the details. So if he, if this man, again, a husband vows, but in his vow, he's really putting an obligation on his wife, saying that she cannot taste a particular kind of fruit. I don't know, fruit, it might be any kind of produce, right? Meaning whatever it is. Nicole Hapi wrote from all of the fruits. Yotzi, he has to divorce her and be take ktuba and pay her ktuba. Rabbi Huda Omer Bisrael, Yomachad Yekayim Shnaim Yotzi Viteng Ktuba. Vachohein Shnaim Yekayim Shosha Yotzi Viteng Ktuba. Meaning the husband is not allowed to forswear his wife's uh, possibility of tasting any kind of particular produce. And to the extent that Rabbi Yehuda's caveat here is that if he's Yisrael, then he has a day within which to kind of keep this in effect or or stop it. And if he, he doesn't keep it in effect, let me say this better. If he stops it from being in effect, then he can, they can go back to being married. To being married, but if in fact it lasts even two days, and he has to divorce and give a tuba, and the kohen gets the extra time again to protect against the risk of divorce for the kohen, but again it's two days versus three days here, so the difference is is again pretty stark, and the idea that he could theoretically restrict her in this way is clearly not um, appreciated by the mishnah. So likewise, a husband who vows and in his vow, he restricts his wife saying that she's not allowed or she's forsworn from um, adorning herself with a particular kind of um, one, any of the types of, presumably this is perfume, right? Yotzi v'yitengs tshuba. He has to divorce her and he has to pay the ketuba. Rabbi Yossi Omer ba'aniyut so Rebiosi here, and it's a different caveat, right? It's a different person and it's a different kind of thing. He says that um, for a poor person, well, you have to be careful to realize that he didn't say that this is for any specific amount of time, right? Like that she should not be able to wear perfume for three days is perhaps might be acceptable, but not when it comes to an und- an, um, an unspecified amount of time. But the point is that this idea that he would divorce her only kicks in if he hasn't specified the amount of time to the extent that it sounds eternal, right? And if there's, if it's a wealthy woman, a wealthy couple, I suppose, right, where they're actually presumed to be, you know, adorning themselves, they're going to be more elaborate in the way they decorate themselves. I don't know if that's really true in terms of style or in terms of practice, but in, certainly in terms of the amount you could spend on such a thing, right? So then. Um, then the, it seems that she's not allowed to wear this uh, decoration or perfume for 30 days. Um, if it goes as long as 30 days, then he has to divorce her and give her tuba um, as compared to the poor woman where, again, the, it only kicks in if it's for, for it's an unspecified set amount of time. Um, I find this last case really to be the most interesting Um but I find all of these cases to be a little bit concerning because it's the husband taking an oath that limits his wife's conduct, let's say, as opposed to talking to her and saying, you know, please don't wear that perfume or 
could you hold off on tasting that produce or whatever? So whatever's going on between this couple at this time, I, I, I feel like I want the backstory before we even get to these details of the halacha. Yeah, I, I, I think it's also interesting for it to sort of like start off with this case, right? Like this is like very typical, uh, you know, Mishnah. Like I just feel there's like a whole background to give a context to this Mishnah that we're just not getting here. Yeah, right. Meaning I can imagine that there was somebody who did this, right? That's what. That's why we even have the concept of this halakha. Why is somebody going around saying, my wife can't get the benefit from anything I do. My wife can't taste any of this fruit. My wife can't wear this perfume. Like it's a strange, it's a strange. Right. Um, and I almost wonder if like the 30 day piece of it is there as a like, yes, we know you gave, made this nether and yes, you have to abide by it, but this is a crazy thing to do. And we're hoping you'll come to your senses in 30 days time. I assume that's the case. I assume that's the backdrop. Yeah. Also be, I'm listen, the 30 days as a set number of date as a specific time when it comes to oath taking, we'll discuss much more, I'm sure, in Masachat Nadarim. Right? Nadarim is a there's a lot of things that default to 30 days. But here I thought it was like the same way that the the commentary says that it's because let's give the Kohen a little bit of a chance to kind of cool down and make sure he really wants to go through with this. I feel like even 30 days gives you a little bit of time to to cool off and make sure you want to go through with it. Yeah, exactly. All right, I'm going to jump down then to Ahmed Bed. There's a lot of discussion about the 30 days and how the 30 days work. And here the Gemara is, you know, looking at the phrase of the mission, it says, that up till 30 days, he has to have somebody who is going to feed her. In other words, he's not allowed to just like be like, sorry, no food, right? So the Gemara doesn't understand this because isn't the idea of putting in a trustee or a shaliach just doing what the husband, like it's acting on behalf of the husband. So if the husband takes his vow that his wife cannot derive any benefit from him, then how is he allowed to have a, you know, trustee or an agent who does this on his behalf? I'm a Rav Huna. So Rav Huna says, but Omer, call Azan a no mafsid. So Rav Huna says, this trustee, right, this person who's appointed in the Mishnah was not actually appointed. What the Mishnah is basically talking about is somebody who says, uh, in very general terms, like somebody who says, whoever sustains my wife, call Hazan, a no mafsid, will not lose out. So in other words, when this person makes the nether saying, my wife cannot benefit from me, they add this clause, which is sort of like, and whoever does, you know, give, you know, Ms. Uh, who does sustain my wife, doesn't lose out, right? So anybody who chooses to do this, the husband will compensate, right? They'll pay them, but it's not the wife directly benefiting from the husband. Now, I, I, if there's a loophole, this is a loophole, you know, like, and, and that's certainly not what the Mishnah says, but I think the Gemara really doesn't understand how this is supposed to work. So then the Gemara says, okay, when the husband says this, isn't the person who's doing it still the Shaliyah? Like the Gemara is not giving up with Ravuna. They're like, this still doesn't make sense. And so now they quote a Mishnah from Gittin. It, it appears on Dab Samachvav, page 66, Amadalev. 
uh, right? So, uh, you know, so basically what the idea is, is that one who is, let's say somebody was thrown into a pit and said, whoever hears his voice should write a, a, a get to his wife, right? In other words, he's saying this because he's concerned he won't be rescued and she wouldn't be able to remarry, right? Or, you know, would have to go into Yivam, right? So those who heard him, should they write and give a bill, uh, give her a, actually give her a get? In other words, yes, these people are considered his shaliach, right? So again, just to be clear what he's doing, he's worried he's never going to be rescued. So he says, anybody who hears my voice, they should be like my shaliach and write my wife a bill of divorce so that in case I don't get rescued, right? She's not a widow. She doesn't have to do Yivam or she's not an Aguna. For some reason, they never get the buy. I don't know, whatever. He protects her by basically divorcing her, right? So the point of this Mishnah is basically saying, right, that they are considered his shaliach, right? Because he gives instructions. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to actually write this get on his behalf, right? So the idea also is, is that when a husband says, this statement of, you know, I'm, I'm making a nether that my wife can't derive benefit from me, but call Hazani no mafsid, but anybody who does provide for her doesn't lose out. Uh, the Mishnah, the Gemara goes on then. So this is their proof of this, that the Shlichut, you know, is maintained. Hachi hashda. So now the Gemara is going to say, well, wait, how could we really compare these cases? I'm a Rabbi Ami. So Rabbi Ami says, right, Bidleka ki tirulamar, kola mechabe no mafsid. Let's say, right, and this is a very famous case on Shabbat. A fire breaks out on Shabbat, okay? And, right, the Chachamim basically allow him to say, right, in front of non-Jews, right, in front of Jews, basically, whoever puts the fire out is not going to lose out. Right? So in the case of this fire, what are we coming to exclude? Lavlumaute kai hai gavna. Does it not exclude a case like this? In other words, it would seem that only in a case of fire, right, where there's all these extenuating circumstances, would the does the Chazal allow this type of uh, appointing of a person to do something without them being a shaliach? Because normally, you're not allowed to tell an Anjou to do work for you on Shabbat, because that would basically be appointing them to be your shaliach. But here, in the special case of a fire, right, you're allowed to make this formulation. So is that the reason why? And it says, lo, lemaute shar isurim de Shabbat. No. So they say this ruling comes to exclude other prohibitions of Shabbat. In other words, this, you can't compare anything with this. There's nothing about shlichut. This has to do with a particular case about fire. Meitzif Rabbah. So now Rabbah is going to bring another objection. And this is from a mission in Nidarim that appears on page uh, Mem Gimel, on Mem Gimel Amidala, 43a. Somebody who prohibited by vow getting benefit from another person, okay? And he doesn't have anything to eat, right? Right? So he can go to a storekeeper who he knows, and he can say, This person prohibited by vow getting any benefit from me. And I don't know what I can do for him. The storekeeper gives this person money. Right? And that, and then comes later and makes payment 
from this person who basically like approached him. So this is kind of like, so Rabbi basically says this kind of way of sort of like you're indirectly doing something. So it ends up being permitted, but you can't say out loud, right? That you're not allowed to do. So in other words, this case in the Dharam is that if somebody basically says, I won't derive benefit from my friend, the friend knows that that person basically has no food. He wants to figure out a way to get him food. So he goes to the storekeeper who gives him food. He gives the food to the friend. And then he like, whatever, he later goes ahead and he pays the storekeeper. But it's all done in like this very like hinty backwards way. But the point is, is that you're not allowed to say, right? An obvious statement like, that's the solution that this Mishnah in the Dharan basically presents. So then the Gemara goes on to say, right? This right, the Tana in that Mishnah is speaking, right, using a different, uh, using a different language, right, of saying, right, right, it's not necessary, right, um, to say that he can say in general terms, right, you know, right, whoever sustains will not lose out, because he's speaking to everybody, in other words, he didn't specify a specific agent. This is like just a general thing that he says. Of a high, but here in this case the, of the Mishnah Nidarim, right? But here, since he's the one with the oath, the person who took the oath knows him. And he goes and says this to him. He goes to the storekeeper. Like the storekeeper knows all the parties who are basically involved. Command Amar Zil, right? And right, at so what we're basically saying is there you would think that it's a case where he says like go give him yourself the Mishnah teaches us no that you could since you didn't make it explicit the storekeeper isn't basically considered your shaliach so you're not really allowed to sort of like compare those two cases now the Gemara then from here actually goes on to sort of actually look at this uh, this Mishnah in, uh, in Nidarim and wants to explore it a little bit more. And I actually feel the Gemara doesn't really land well or sort of explain like why this isn't the solution of Rav Huna, why this isn't considered a shaliyah. It's sort of just inferred that, yeah, he doesn't make a specific appointment and it's vague enough that we sort of allow it. But I think what the Gemara is grappling with here is, is that the scenario of this Mishnah is just, it's basically absurd. Like how can a husband, we just spent, all these dapim previously and previous prakim basically talking about what a husband is obligated to do for his wife. And then he along comes and says, like, you just can't derive benefit from me. And essentially, like, the Mishnah is sort of, in a way, and Rav Huna in a very explicit way is just like, yeah, you just, like, you can't do that, at least for the first 30 days. Like, if you don't want to be married to your wife, fine, you're going to divorce her. But you can't, like, this is such a preposterous neder to make then almost in the way we see, and again, we haven't gotten to Nadarim, I think the halakha, like Chazal really sort of bend the rules of Nadarim because this case is so outlandish. Um, I think that the caveat, right, of here, we're going to give you this loophole is really interesting. Like, why is it there to begin with? Okay, now we've got a limitation on it. I think that the outlandish nature of this case is kind of in its essence. It's it's a bit of a strange scenario. Yeah, it's very strange. And I, I again, I, I'm going to like keep this parak in our head, 
we got to remember this Mishnah when we get to Nadarin because it's like such an obvious loophole. But on the other end, they don't want to say like, you're not allowed to make a nether like that as well, which I'm also puzzled by. But the nether is kind of implicit in the fact that they've gotten married, right? That's why I think it's kind of like in the essence of the of the whole scenario that we've got this case that it says you got married. There are terms. Now you have to keep to those terms. If you're not going to keep to those terms, well, now let's open the discussion of whether you really are dealing with Nadarim or how that applies to marriage. I guess the parallels are necessary. I still think it's a little bit of a strange, certainly is a strange opener to the parak. Very, very strange. And I guess we're going to have to see how this parak unfolds. Well, that's our top discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Tom and Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Thank <music> you.